All right, if you've listened this far, you know the deal. The book that came out of this podcast is called How the Internet Happened, From Netscape to the iPhone by me, available wherever fine books are sold. Also, the podcast I do these days is called The Tech Meme Ride Home. Search any podcast app for Ride Home, and you should find The Tech Meme Ride Home, which is all the day's tech news every weekday in just 15 minutes. If you like this show, you'll love that one. One, two, three, four. Those are numbers. But you already knew that. If you want to know what number you're going to pay each month for your car, use Kelly Blue Book My Wallet on AutoTrader. They're really good at numbers. AutoTrader. Welcome to the Internet History Podcast. I'm your host, Brian McCullough. This is Chapter 5, Part 1, an episode that I'm calling Big Media's Big Web Adventure. Over the last several episodes, in both the chapters and the interviews, we've been looking at how the early web pioneers were feeling their way along, sort of in the dark, into creating an entirely new industry. And we've tried to take a look at what the average user was doing on the internet during this period. But as we all know, the internet and the web have been a great disruptive force in our lives. In fact, disruption. If the internet has given us any big word, I guess that's the one. And we've heard so many stories over the years about how the web has disrupted media that I thought it was time to take a look at that. The web has disrupted other industries too, or if it hasn't done, will probably soon do so. But so far, it's disrupted media first and the most. And I guess that's because people have largely thought of the internet as a new medium, the first new medium since television. And so even though we've spent so much time talking about the Silicon Valley and tech angle of things so far, I thought it was important to devote a chapter to media big media, how media and the big media companies responded to the internet and the web. Yes, it's largely been a story of disruption, but it's not only been a story of just failure. Big media, newspapers, television, radio, music companies, etc., have all tried to respond to the web each in their own way, to adapt to it, and some of them have done so. And many of them have made pioneering contributions to the internet era itself, and so to not devote some time to the creative and business efforts of all these people who came from outside the traditional environs of Silicon Valley would be, I think, to miss a major piece of the Nets' founding history. So in two big stories in this episode, we'll talk about Real Cities and Pathfinder.com. We're going to look at how big media responded to the advent of the Internet era. For a long time, it was assumed by many people, and not just by the media companies themselves, but by most people, that the internet was just going to be another medium that major media companies would eventually come to dominate. We now know that this did not end up taking place, and in fact, the story of big media adapting to the internet era can be one of missteps and misunderstandings. 
But taking a look at how big media first responded to the challenge of the Internet can help us understand how and why this disruption has occurred. Old-style big media really could have dominated the web and the Internet. The reasons why they didn't are complicated, but ultimately mundane. Time and again, big media simply did not understand what made the Internet different. I would actually posit that they really did think of the Internet and the web as just another medium, another way to deliver their media, and thus did not exactly grok how the Internet was a fundamentally different medium. I know it's not exactly an original thought, but hopefully the details I've collected here will make the thesis a little more profound. So let's take a step back. The media landscape, as we're familiar with it, is an ecosystem of a handful of big conglomerates. There are the five major record labels, five major book publishers, a handful of radio companies, etc. And only a handful of big media companies own those few major players in each industry. For example, Viacom owns Paramount Pictures, and it owns MTV, and Nickelodeon, and BET. Hearst owns Car and Driver and Cosmopolitan, but it also owns radio stations and TV stations and newspapers. Hachette, uh, much in the news lately, is obviously one of the biggest publishers of books, but so is News Corp. The tangled web of properties we're familiar with today was the result of decades of consolidation, buyouts, and mergers. And that consolidation had just reached its greatest extent right at the exact time that the internet burst on the scene. If you remember from Chapter 2, Part 1, when we were talking about the information superhighway, the major media companies were ready and eager to see a new information-centric medium come along. They were planning for it. And so even though it did not come in the broadband flavor that people like Bill Gates and John Malone promised, when the internet became popular, there actually was a frenzy ready-made from every corner of the media landscape to plant a flag in cyberspace. And with good reason. Every advance in technology up to this point had proven ultimately quite profitable for these conglomerates. When CDs replaced vinyl albums and cassettes, the record companies were just printing money as consumers were convinced to replace their music collections wholesale. And while Hollywood initially fought the birth of home video, both movie rentals and eventually movie sales generated enormous new revenue streams. Cable television had proven quite disruptive to the traditional big three television networks, but they solved this problem by eventually amalgamating all of the best of the new cable channels into their conglomerates. Indeed, it was this cable TV model that seemed to point the way for big media when it came to the internet. The media companies had all of the good content, after all, so if this was a new medium, it would just be a new delivery mechanism for the content that they had spent the last few decades conglomerating. And anything quote-unquote new that might be birthed on the web would probably just eventually be acquired and rolled into their portfolios just like the cable brands like MTV and ESPN had been. For their part, Newspapers had been experimenting for decades with new technologies to deliver news and information digitally, so they were also game to experiment with the web. In fact, the only recent technological development that had given big media any sort of heartburn had been the early 90s fad for CD-ROM technology, which had eaten up hundreds of millions of dollars in investment, 
without ever proving itself to be a major new market, as so many had hoped and predicted. And so media tentatively waded into internet waters. Innovations started to come from various corners of the media landscape. For example, WXYC, 89.3 FM in Chapel Hill, North Carolina, is variously credited with being the first radio station to stream on the internet. A November 1994 Rolling Stones concert was the first live event to be streamed online. A major player in the early media developments was actually a company called Progressive Networks, which was later renamed to Real Networks. Real Networks was founded by a former Microsoft executive named Rob Glazer in 1994. It developed a proprietary audio and later video format that allowed streaming media to be embedded on the web. The key innovation was that the media file in question could be played even while it was downloading, which was an important consideration back in the days of dial-up internet speeds. If you were on the web in the mid-90s, then you probably remember the .ra media file extension and probably had a real media player or plugin for your browser since almost any audio or video file in those days was in the real media codec. Real audio eventually succumbed to other media formats developed by larger players like Microsoft's Windows Media Player and Apple's QuickTime, which were free while Real Networks was attempting to charge for media servers. And then, of course, there were MP3s and broadband, which came along and suddenly low bandwidth streaming wasn't a big issue. But before being overtaken, Real Audio dominated early web media. It was single-handedly responsible for 85% of streaming media on the early web and paved the way for the web becoming a truly multimedia experience. It was responsible for many firsts, like the first baseball game that streamed live over the internet when a game between the New York Yankees and Seattle Mariners was broadcast on September 5, 1995. But as previously mentioned... It really was newspapers that led the way onto the web because newspapers had been tinkering with digital technology for quite a while. So there were newspaper-run BBS systems, telnet systems, message boards, and the like, going all the way back to the 70s and 80s. The Tech, the campus newspaper at MIT, claims to be the first newspaper to publish on the web back in 1993, but I think that the newspaper that best exemplifies the most aggressive efforts to colonize the internet and the web is the San Jose Mercury News. The Mercury News just happens to be the local paper of Silicon Valley, so when the internet revolution started, the Mercury News had a hundred-year story dropped from heaven right into its own backyard. The Mercury News actually had a digital publishing initiative called Mercury Center that predated the web. It was the brainchild of a man named Bob Engel, who would eventually be the executive editor of the Mercury News. Engel had come to the Mercury News by way of the Miami Herald. Both the Herald and the Mercury News were owned by the Knight Ritter newspaper chain. You might recall from an earlier chapter mention of Viewtron, a video text system that Knight Ritter had been experimenting with in Coral Gables, Florida in the 1980s. Viewtron employed about 200 people to create a system that delivered not just news, 
but also allowed the exchange of messages, shopping, and limited banking over telephone lines and via a terminal connected to TV sets. The experiment was supposed to run in 5,000 homes, but by 1984, the project only had about 3,000 subscribers, and so eventually Viewtron was abandoned. One Knight Ritter executive told the Wall Street Journal, quote, People thought Videotext was going to be an electronic newspaper. It's something else, but we're not exactly sure what yet, end quote. So back at the Miami Herald, Bob Engel had been around for Viewtron, and he actually had been living in one of the homes that tested Viewtron. He would later fondly remember watching a boxing match and checking the judges' scorecards between rounds on his terminal. And so he never forgot the promise that he saw in digital publishing. To him, it was an inevitability, the future. So when Knight Ritter moved him from the Miami Herald to the San Jose Mercury News, he took the lessons of the Viewtron experiment with him. In January of 1990, he composed a report for Knight Ritter higher-ups, outlining a vision of the future as he saw it. Here is how it was described by the Columbia Journalism Review. Quote, Ingalls' 1990 report was both visionary and defensive. He envisioned a world in which the personal computer and modem were ubiquitous, a world of flat-paneled screens, portable devices, and software that, as he put it, could act as information managers. He also saw a future in which people no longer organize themselves merely by physical proximity, but as virtual communities of interest, connected electronically. All of this, and much that could not be predicted, he wrote, would surely happen. The question was how his newspaper could position itself to be in the center of it all and not be remanded to the periphery, end quote. On the strength of this report, Engel proposed, and was given the go-ahead for, the creation of a laboratory, not separate from the operations of the Mercury News, but within and alongside it. He dubbed the laboratory Mercury Center. The center was launched with a small staff in 1992. No Mercury News reporters were dedicated to the project. Instead, he and the team cobbled together a service that would complement the paper not compete with it. Mercury Center would offer full news archives going back to 1985, electronic chat, movie theater times, a mortgage rate hotline, public legal documents, press conference transcripts, wire service stories not published in the regular paper, and more. In short, Mercury Center would offer the Mercury News's regular content, but with more in-depth offerings online. It was sort of how you now regularly see where a show or a publication will say, if you'd like to see the full interview, go online. These were complements to what the paper was already doing, extensions. Codes were printed at the bottom of stories so that readers could call or log in for the additional content. For all those who signed up, disks would be mailed by the circulation department so that users could install the service for dialing in. This cost $9.95 a month, and users without a computer could pay $2.95 a month for just phone and fax service. And all of this was made possible via a partnership Ingle had inked with America Online, which handled the monthly fees. As we'll see, many media properties started this way by inking a deal with AOL or one of the other online services. 
The Mercury Center proved to be a small but genuinely successful experiment. Newspapers from around the country came to the Mercury News to see how the experiment was working out. In early 1994, in fact, the New York Times ran a profile on the Mercury Center, noting that there had been 5,100 signups, which represented 20% of America Online's then 30,000 subscribers in the Bay Area, albeit less than 2% of the Mercury News' 282,000 subscribers. The New York Times article noted that one key innovation introduced by Mercury Center was that reporters were urged to interact with readers about their stories. Ingle told the Times reporter, quote, Our communication historically has been, we print it, you read it. This changes everything. End quote. It was a lesson that all media entrants to the internet era would have to learn, or not learn, at their peril. You could no longer just talk at users. On the internet, the users expected to be able to talk back. In fact, though, this was a lesson that even in the Mercury News itself, not all were keen to absorb. The reporters complained that the online discourse with readers was, quote, babble. And reporters resented being asked to give their time to the online efforts anyway, always protesting that they had a paper to put out after all. As Stephen Wright, a reporter and editor at the Mercury News during this time period, put it, quote, Online was always number two, despite the annual slogans used to try and convince the journalists otherwise. I don't have time to write a web brief. I'm writing for page one, more than one reporter told me year after year. End quote. The marketing department, too, complained that selling subscriptions felt a little like selling AOL on behalf of AOL. But Ingle urged the Mercury Center to keep on innovating. When in the fall of 1994, the Mosaic web browser came out, the Mercury Center quickly rushed to embrace the web as well. In January of 1995, the San Jose Mercury News, via the Mercury Center, became the first daily newspaper in the nation to launch a website. Access for that website was originally $4.95 a month on the web, though the paywall was later dropped in an effort to land more advertisers. On the web, the Mercury News would continue to break ground, becoming the first daily to put the entire content of a given issue on its website, and was the first to use the site to break news instead of waiting for the next day's edition. In April of 1995, when the Oklahoma City bombing occurred, a photograph flashed across the wires that would eventually become iconic. That picture you all remember of a firefighter holding a child in his arms. The Mercury Center immediately posted it to its website over the objections of the paper's photo editor who wanted to save the photo for the next day's front page. And so, in a thousand little ways like this, the Mercury Center made a small, pioneering foothold on the web and it found small but genuine success, with thousands of new subscribers and around $120,000 in revenue per month by the end of its first year. By 1997, the website could claim more than 1.2 million monthly visitors. As we said, the Mercury News in general enjoyed great success in the 90s, covering its hometown.com story, and so the innovations of the Mercury Center 
allowed the paper to rub shoulders almost as an equal with the new Technorati. Early on, Bob Engel reportedly gave a digital publishing talk to none other than Netscape, and Knight Ritter even took a small stake in Netscape. In 1996, Jeff Skoll, who had once worked for Knight Ritter, came to the company and offered it a small stake in the startup for which he was employee number two, eBay. Knight Ritter turned that investment down, which is ironic because it would be sites like eBay that would do so much to destroy the classified advertising revenue stream on which newspapers relied so heavily. And actually, a little note about that here. It's a story told over and over about how newspapers got disrupted because the internet came in and killed the golden calf that was classified advertising. How could they not have seen it coming? Why didn't they adapt, is what everyone always says. But the truth is, they did see it coming. In fact, when Tony Ritter himself was installed as the head of the Knight Ritter Company in 1995, he was asked what kept him up at night. He replied, quote, electronic classified, end quote. And I mean, here we have in Bob Engel and the Mercury News a newspaper that saw the digital future and was actively trying to embrace it. And newspapers specifically tried to fight the loss of classified advertising to the web in lots and lots of different ways, not the least of which was the efforts like Career Builder, which was a joint venture between none other than Knight Ritter along with the Tribune Company, or Cars.com, which was another industry venture that Knight Ritter helped found. And yet, looking back in retrospect, I guess all we can say is that they didn't adapt fast enough, maybe, or with enough belief, or maybe they never really stopped doing things the old newspaper way. In fact, as we'll see, there's a common pattern of ills that hamstrung the efforts of big media to adapt to the internet, and one of them was something as mundane as ever-changing management, and along with the changes in management, changes in corporate strategy. We can even see that right here with the Mercury News, where Bob Engel was gone by 1995, bumped up to head Knight Ritter's new media division, but even there, despite his best Jeremiads, he couldn't quite convince the company to replicate his Mercury Center revolution at other papers. For one thing, online never made any serious revenue, not at least compared to the print model, and certainly not in comparison to print advertising, which during the boom period of the mid to late 90s was breaking records. So management couldn't see the point and continued experimenting when money was flowing just fine. Paging Clayton Christensen, I guess. But even when there were efforts to fight off the innovator's dilemma, they were often hamstrung by another pattern that we're going to see repeated, corporate politics. An alliance was formed among the major newspaper chains, including the New York Times Company, Tribune Company, Knight Ritter, the Washington Post Company, and others. It was called New Century Network, and among other things, it tried to create an aggregated news website called Newsworks. But this effort eventually fell apart due to conflicting corporate agendas. And even when Knight Ritter won paper by itself tried to resurrect the idea of a major online push internally, 
with a project that it called Real Cities, a portal that would aggregate content from its many papers. The project couldn't overcome the infighting between the various Knight Ritter papers themselves. And so we'll see here with Mercury Center, early online efforts and early online lessons learned that would later be forgotten or abandoned. We'll have to leave the story of the newspapers to uh, another, possibly sadder, future episode. But corporate infighting, that's a perfect segue into the story of Time Warner and another pioneering site, Pathfinder. The other big boys of printed media, the magazines and book publishers, were experimenting digitally as well, although early on most major media brands got their feet wet just as the Mercury Center had via partnerships with online services like AOL. Again, I'd point you back to our earlier episodes on the rise of AOL. Early on in its life, AOL made a major concerted effort to land content providers like magazines and newspapers so that they could have content online that users would be willing to pay by the hour for. So a car and driver might have a section on AOL Autos, or MTV might have their own channel on AOL. Early on, AOL was the young up-and-comer trying to build a membership base, and so it paid handsomely to existing media brands hoping some of this premium content and brand halo would encourage people to be willing to pay by the hour and maybe, say, read their magazines on their computers. And major media and content providers quickly got quite comfortable with the easy new revenue streams that online services provided them, especially since they could play AOL and CompuServe and Prodigy off one another for larger and larger fees. These deals were generated by various new media teams at the various media conglomerates that sprung up at the time. A great snapshot of this era can be found in the book Bamboozled at the Revolution, How Big Media Lost Billions in the Battle for the Internet, by John Motavalli. He summed it up quite nicely on page 7 of the book, so I'm going to just quote directly from that. At every media company in the second half of the 90s, a beleaguered new media division was assigned the thankless task of trying to make sense of the internet. Almost universally, these groups were given small or virtually non-existent budgets, an offshoot of the common proviso that all departments of a company had to make money. End quote. It's the unsung heroes and pioneers of these new media divisions that we're going to look at now. The new media divisions had grown out of the earlier mini-fad for CD-ROMs, as well as the early 90s fad for the Information Superhighway. Again, listen back to our chapters on the Information Superhighway. But as we said there, big media had watched the personal computer revolution of the 1980s and they were fully ready for digital and computer technology to transform their industry as well. And then media was looking at the big sales that television shopping channels like QVC were ringing up, and then they thought of how catalog shopping was already a $51 billion market in 1993, and how telephony itself was an $80 billion market. 
And so that information superhighway dream that we spoke of, that somehow they would put it in a blender and mix up some combination of the telephone, the computer, and the television, and they would suddenly have new distribution channels for media and content and untold new chances for profit. This was how new media divisions were born. In many ways, the greatest exemplar of this mania was Time Warner, and the greatest believer in the information superhighway dream was its CEO at the time, Gerald Levin. Jerry Levin was a big believer that technology could transform entertainment and media. In fact, he had been an early pioneer in doing so. Levin is credited with coming up with the idea of distributing HBO via satellite all the way back in 1975. So he can be thought of as a pioneer of the cable industry itself in the same breath as Ted Turner or John Malone. As we saw, Levin championed Malone's notions of a info highway in order to develop the full-service network project within Time Warner. If you'll recall, the full-service network was that interactive television test in Orlando, Florida that was a notorious and expensive flop. But the failure of the full-service network did not cool Levin's ardor for technology in the least. As none other than Henry Luce III, the son of Time Magazine's founder, told the reporter Kara Swisher, quote, Levin put a lot of energy and commitment into the automation of the media and of advances through technology, as well as company money. It was almost always a big miss, but he always believed in it, end quote. And so, when in the wake of full-service networks shutdown, Levin saw that the internet was becoming the next big technological thing, he decided to take another crack at it. A sort of ad hoc technology committee was formed within Time Warner to develop potential programming products to work with this new internet. The members of this committee largely came from the Time side of Time Warner, and they largely called on the talents of those that had been working on the full-service network before its failure. For example, full-service network had a project called News Exchange, which was an early experiment with news on demand, with users able to pick and choose what stories, weather, or sports scores they wanted to see, calling up videos and data at the click of a remote control. So, since Time Warner had collected this group of technologically-minded tinkerers, they simply moved them over to begin working on web experiments under the auspices of this technology committee. The result of all this would be a pioneering website, Pathfinder, at pathfinder.com, which would be the flagship that Time Warner would operate all of its web experiments under going forward. What would Pathfinder be? Well, it's important to remember that Pathfinder was conceived of by magazine and print media people from the Time Division. So these are folks that had worked at Time Magazine, Sports Illustrated, People, Fortune, that sort of thing. And to these people, when they looked at the web, it seemed like a logical extension of publishing, a platform that they were already familiar with. As AOL's Ted Leonsis remembered, quote, 
The metaphor that the internet developed on certainly sounded like it was about publishing. Page views, browser, there was this manifest destiny that we, print media people, get it. The thought was that they wouldn't have called it a page view if it wasn't about publishing. End quote. Another media veteran from the time, Newsweek's Michael Rogers, remembers that the web seemed to be a tabula rasa that fit whatever model people were looking to build on it. Quote, I used to call it dial-a-metaphor. When you went to the early new media conferences, people would get up and say, it's really like the recording industry, or we're going to use the movie studio model, or we're going to use the book publishing model. And then the next level of sophistication would be, it's a combination of these two businesses. End quote. And so Time Warner looked at the web and saw publishing. Here's how the author Motivali described it in his book, quote, The web looked made to order for the company, a malleable medium that could be quickly dominated by the experienced sophisticates in the Time Life building. This tiny elite felt that they already had a leg up over the media competition because the FSN, Full Service Network, had at least got them thinking about technology, and it wouldn't require a giant leap simply to transport the whole operation over to the web. And keep in mind, at this point in time, Time Warner already had experience creating digital content for partners like AOL. And that was simple enough. If a magazine agreed to publish some of its content on AOL, AOL agreed to give that magazine a certain percentage of the hourly fees, so it was a steady, familiar revenue stream. Revenue shares, hourly fees, subscriptions, this was all stuff that these media executives were familiar with. And the deals with the AOLs and CompuServes of the world had been easy, found money. So the milieu that Pathfinder grew out of was based upon this simple repackaging of real-world content for online content like they had done for the online services. But the web provided the added incentive of cutting out the middlemen and going directly to consumers under their own banner. This was especially enticing to the media companies like Time Warner because despite the easy millions that the deals with AOL and CompuServe were making them, the media companies were growing concerned that the online services were simply using their content as a way to build a platform that supplanted them. As a young executive at Time Warner named Chan Su told his higher-ups vis-a-vis AOL, quote, Right now, they're paying you, but as soon as they leverage your content to get people, they will be requiring you to pay them, unquote. And this is actually exactly how it would turn out. So early in its life, the Pathfinder project started out as an amorphous hybrid of an online service and a website. It was simply a way to throw up all of the great Time Warner brands and all of the great repurposed content, and maybe they could eventually get people to pay for this on the web, AOL style, with monthly fees to access all their favorite titles. And then maybe, perhaps, down the road, they would have the ability to get their news from CNN, echoes of the news exchange project, and who knew, maybe one day rent movies. Uh, 
from the vast library of films from the Warner Brothers side of the Time Warner equation. In short, all of the world-class content that Time Warner had in its stable would be available, hopefully for a price, and it could be distributed on the web, which would fit with Levin's technological vision, and it all had the added benefit of cutting out AOL and the online services from the equation. So Pathfinder was launched on October 24th, 1994. That's almost a full year before the Netscape IPO, and in fact it's right around the same time that Netscape 1.0 was even launched. So most people that were visiting Pathfinder.com in October of 94 were probably visiting it on Mosaic browsers. Pathfinder was edited, because they were adopting the magazine model again, by Time Warner's Jim Kinsella, who would later go on to help develop MSNBC, and the entire project was overseen by Walter Isaacson, again, he of Steve Jobs' biography fame, and who, if you'll recall, had a management role in the full-service network experiment. Pathfinder logged a reported 200,000 hits in its first week, back then they called them hits, and reached 3.2 million page views weekly in its first year. This is back when the amount of people on the web was still comparatively small. In an initial mission statement, written prior to the Pathfinder launch, Walter Isaacson had promised that Pathfinder would, quote, aim for a mass-market audience of people who have not been early adopters to the online world, ordinary folks rather than 17-year-old get-a-life geeks who want to download software, end quote. An early press release from the time is an interesting artifact that shows us sort of what Pathfinder thought of itself and what it was offering the world. Quote, On October 24th, Time Inc. became the first media powerhouse to offer a fully graphical site on the World Wide Web. Since launch, editor Jim Kinsella reports that the service is getting more than 2 million hits or info retrieval requests a week, making it one of the hottest spots on the web. If content is king, Pathfinder has something for almost everyone. You can download an audio clip at Vibeline or the best unpublished photos from Entertainment Weekly. Post a message or follow email threads on Pathfinder's various bulletin boards. Peruse Delirium, a mind-bending illustrated novel, the first ever serialized on the web. Check out Time Daily's Breaking News. Sample reviews of books, TV shows, movies, etc. from Time, Entertainment Weekly, and People. Or personal finance reporting from Money. Dig into the virtual garden for horticultural expertise from Time Life, Southern Living, and Sunset. And OJ Central has the trial of the century covered from every angle. There's lots of interesting things we can pull out of this. First of all, look at the emphasis on... Time Warner properties exclusively. The key sentence here, I think, is, if content is king, Pathfinder has something for almost everyone. Well, almost everyone, if the content you want is Time Warner content. Time Warner was this sprawling conglomerate of media properties, and Pathfinder was designed to showcase its crown jewels. This was all very much by design, of course, because in its own mind, Pathfinder was trying to compete largely with AOL, in a way, Pathfinder was designed to be AOL Lite, delivered over the web instead of a proprietary dial-up system, 
and flavored entirely with Time Warner's content offerings. Even the graphical design sort of mimicked the boxy channels of the AOL from this era. But this is exactly where we start to get into Pathfinder's problems. By emulating AOL, Pathfinder was inadvertently mimicking AOL's walled garden approach to the web. We've discussed previously AOL's schizophrenic relationship with the larger web meant that it was trying to be the best of all worlds. And to some extent, AOL could get away with that. It was also, of course, providing the web as a part of its service. And it was a service in conjunction with its own content offerings. But Pathfinder was standalone, and it was standing alone on the web, entirely of the web, so acting like it could build its own little walled garden inside of the web didn't work as well as Pathfinder maybe hoped it would. Again, here's the young Time Warnerite Chan Su. Quote, They thought they would start Pathfinder as the next generation online service where people would come into it and they would never get out. So searching the internet didn't make sense for them. Why would you want to search anything other than Time Warner content? Time Warner brings the world to you. End quote. Pathfinder actually did have a search product, but it didn't work very well because it wasn't designed to work very well. Pathfinder was a portal on the web, in fact, arguably the first portal, but it wasn't a portal to the web. And so this was problematic when, at the very same time, a site like Yahoo was getting popular by being your guide to everything on the web. Yahoo wanted you to come back to them again and again, this is true, and as we've seen, they would eventually emulate this portal model, but they trusted you would come back because they were successful at their main goal, cataloging the web and sending people off into it. Pathfinder expected you would want to come and to stay and to not want to go anywhere else. Time Warner somewhat arrogantly assumed that its portal would always be the most popular by default because it had the best content in the world behind it. They didn't expect the cobbled-together offerings from a site like Yahoo could ever hope to compete with something as august as Time Magazine. And yet, people ended up preferring Yahoo overwhelmingly because Yahoo embraced the web. It was more of a reliable pathfinder for the web than pathfinder.com was. Again, let me quote here directly from John Motovalli's book. Quote, One iteration of the Pathfinder homepage around this time was a blue screen with dozens of Time Inc. logo links on it, as if that in and of itself was sufficient to create a viable website. Time Inc. seemed to think its brands spoke for themselves, but in trying to say so much, they ended up saying nothing. So Pathfinder was hobbled by a misguided vision at the beginning, and an overwhelming need to serve larger corporate goals. And so this is where we see that corporate myopia that hobbled the newspapers rearing its ugly head again. One of the first and biggest problems that the Pathfinder team would face would be managing and servicing every one of Time Warner's various properties. Each property felt a keen sense of ownership and responsibility for the content it was handing over for Pathfinder to put on the web. There were more than 80 properties that Pathfinder was supposed to service, and each one naturally thought its content should get prime placement. 
People Magazine was so unhappy with the size of its initial presence on the Pathfinder homepage that it threatened to launch its own website, only to be talked back into the fold by Walter Isaacson. Pathfinder's corporate parent, Time Warner, also had ambivalent feelings when it came to the interactive nature of the World Wide Web. Quite simply, Time Warner was used to publishing and having people read, just as Bob Engel had said. They weren't quite comfortable with people talking back, as the web made possible. Pathfinder had bulletin boards and chat, built off its own proprietary platform called Wabbit, and as mentioned previously, one of the early successes that Pathfinder enjoyed was during the O.J. Simpson case, which was, of course, raging at the time. And on a section of the site called O.J. Central, Pathfinder users could debate the case. It was a perfect example that showed Pathfinder was capable of doing online community, at least as well as AOL or Yahoo. But we all know how internet comment sections can descend into a cesspool of trolls and invectives. And after the passage of the Communications Decency Act, Time Warner executives started to fear that the free-for-all of online comments and user-generated debate might open them up and expose them liability-wise. So management slowly began to discourage community efforts. Community editors were hired and tasked with policing the community sections, discouraging users who started to see their chats censored or even deleted. Sites on Pathfinder that still wanted to encourage community were now forced to turn to third-party solutions provided by outside partners like Craig Canerick's Razorfish. Stephen Baldwin is a former Pathfinder employee who runs a great site named the Pathfinder Museum, which I'll link to on this episode's page on the website. There will also be some great pictures from uh, his museum on there as well. He notes that the strategic mantra at Pathfinder was the three C's, which stood for content, community, and commerce. Obviously, Pathfinder could pull from some of the best content providers in the world, and experiments were also being done in the area of commerce with an early e-commerce initiative called Open Market. But when it came to community, quoting Baldwin, quote, community, the final C, ironically, became the source for its own perverse variant of the three Cs, confusion, consternation, and chaos. Because senior management never shared a single point of view about the desirability of offering interactivity. End quote. And then there was just the Byzantine nature of Time Warner's internal corporate politics that helped hobble Pathfinder. Reading John Motovalli's Bamboozled at the Revolution book is a dizzying, chaotic tale of corporate infighting, backstabbing, and changing strategic myopia. Executives in charge of Pathfinder seem to come and go quarterly. The strategy and purpose of Pathfinder was reconceived as each new regime swept into power and as the needs of the larger Time Warner Corporation changed. For example, when an executive named Paul Sagan took over Pathfinder 
After Walter Isaacson took the job as the head editor at Time magazine, Sagan initiated a push to develop a personalized news product called Personal Edition. This initiative took up a tremendous amount of developmental resources without ever producing a successful product. As an aside, isn't it interesting that personalized news is always a problem that people are always trying to solve with every new iteration of technology? As soon as the iPad came out, you had things like Flipboard coming out to try to deliver you a personalized newspaper. Stuff like this has been going on since the beginning of the web. Anyway, there was also the problem of how Time Warner was trying to cobble old-world media practices onto this new web hybrid they were building. Pathfinder had layer upon layer of management and editorial ships. This was because it was structured in the way a traditional Time Warner magazine was structured. According to Motovali, some of the earliest fights among management was how and how prominently to make the masthead for each site. The masthead, of course, is that list of editorial and corporate credits. Magazines and newspapers have them. Websites largely don't. And then there was the weird logic of the whole arrangement. Yes, Time Warner had this stable of world-class content, but instead of leveraging those brands, some of them, like Time and Sports Illustrated and CNN, some of the most trusted media sources in the world, were all cobbled together under this one Pathfinder tent. You couldn't get People Magazine content by going to people.com. You had to go to pathfinder.com forward slash people. And some of the people at these brands deeply resented that. For example, for years, People Magazine refused to even mention its website in print, still smarting, I guess, from their abortive coup that they had attempted earlier. And that's all well and good. Bruised egos are one thing, but... This lost Pathfinder millions of dollars in potential free publicity. And it just seems obvious in retrospect that maybe the thing to do would have been to leverage each brand individually. So that, say, Sports Illustrated had its own standalone website, which maybe would have been first to the web market and would today be a trusted destination instead of a web also ran which it became, trailing ESPN and even unlikely names like CBS Sportsline. Because the various brands resented the Pathfinder umbrella, and because Time Warner has such a vicious culture of warring fiefdoms and corporate politics and infighting, the brands tended to withhold their best content from Pathfinder. So Pathfinder was behind the eight ball no matter what it did. Here's how Bill Lessard a Pathfinder producer, put it, quote, The situation really did remind me of Italian city-states, a loose confederation warring against each other and against us, Pathfinder. End quote. Again, Time Warner was the exemplar of this corporate bumbling, but it wasn't alone. As an example... Despite being the first name in stock market news, and despite being the literal soundtrack for the 1990s bull market and dot-com bubble, 
CNBC has never really been the biggest name in online financial sites. That was because of a clause in the deal between Microsoft and NBC that created MSNBC, which we'll mention later. In exchange for allowing NBC to run the cable channel, Microsoft stipulated that NBC could not launch any news websites that might compete in any serious way with the online component of MSNBC. A site like Yahoo Kids proved to be wildly successful for family audiences before Viacom even made a concerted effort to turn Nickelodeon.com into something meaningful because Viacom was, at the time, largely hostile to the web. But then we have to go back to Time Warner again because CNN was obviously the best in the world at the time offering 24-hour real-time news. And yet it, too, was hamstrung because it had to exist under the Pathfinder umbrella. And under that umbrella, it had to compete with Time.com to be the most prominent news source on Pathfinder. As we've seen, competing on Internet time meant executing with lightning speed. And so one of the biggest problems for these older media brands was that their lumbering corporate cultures couldn't keep up. It didn't help that so much of that culture didn't understand or was downright hostile to the web. It didn't help that they saw the web as some sort of Mickey Mouse second-rate version of TV or print magazines. And in a way, it didn't help that for all their money and success, the media companies weren't very good at being entrepreneurial. It took about a decade, traditionally, to successfully launch a new magazine title like Sports Illustrated. And for Time Warner's part, the last successful new title that it had launched was Entertainment Weekly back in the late 1980s. Comparatively, when these media guys were sitting down with internet companies for partnership discussions, they were august old representatives of decades-old companies with arcane traditions and huge expense accounts. And they were sitting across the table from young, scruffy-looking kids in their 20s and 30s who, in just a few short years, had scraped together entirely new companies and even industries that were now worth billions of dollars. So there was a real cultural disconnect going on. And as icing on the cake, there was no small degree of jealousy. Because these scruffy-looking kids were now themselves worth billions, and yet in the world of Time Warner, the tradition of big stock option grants and financial incentives for innovation and entrepreneurship just wasn't very common. Despite all this, and almost in spite of itself, Pathfinder was a major early web presence. It was serving up billions of page views at the exact same moment in time that Yahoo was first reaching billions. And there were some real pioneering things achieved at Pathfinder. We mentioned the early e-commerce effort Open Market, which was joined by a shopping service named Dream Shop, and also a joint venture called Catalog One, which put catalogs from Spiegel, Sharper Image, and Eddie Bauer online. Although the actual ordering still had to be done over the phone because at the time it was implemented, it was not believed that online commerce was safe enough. 
A few stabs were made at selling CDs and other media online. Of course, probably only CDs from Warner Music Artists. Transcripts of the nightly news were made available. Sports Illustrated eventually launched a sports ticker. Money Magazine was one of the first to offer free stock quotes, limited to 50 a day. And one of the most pioneering efforts was a section of the site called the Netly News, described as covering politics and culture in an irreverent style targeted at tech industry insiders. The Netly News was started by Josh Quitner and Noah Robshan, and can be thought of as a forerunner of the kind of web-first media coverage with a slightly snarky bent that we're used to now from sites like Gawker. The Netly News started in November 1995 and ran through late 1998, and while it gained an influential following in media circles, it was shuttered because it could never get traffic numbers that could make Pathfinder any kind of reasonable money. And it should be noted that Pathfinder had a certain level of success early on, attracting advertisers. In early 1994-95, when big brands like Ford or McDonald's would be like, who is Yahoo? They were happy to sign up for sponsorships with a company like Time, which the brands knew and trusted. Early on, Pathfinder could command ad rates of around 30000 per quarter, and by virtue of being early to the game, Pathfinder regularly got tens of millions of visitors, and late into the 90s was perennially in the top 10 in terms of the most visited websites in the world. Again, without really knowing it, Time Warner had created one of the first true web portals. And so, in the late 90s, when portals were the watchword and Wall Street was demanding everyone have a web strategy... There was a brief shining moment where Time Warner looked like the only major company that, quote, got it. So much so, in fact, that Disney made a belated attempt to mimic what Time Warner had done with Pathfinder. It would go on to create Go.com, or the Go Network, by purchasing the search engine InfoSeek, combining it with ABC News, ESPN, and other Disney brands and goodies to create a portal of its own. But Go.com was destined to be a failure, just like Pathfinder eventually would be. Pathfinder was kicked around by its corporate parent a few more times over the course of the 90s. Strategies changed again and again. Now it's a portal. No, now we'll break out all the brands into individual sites. It'll now be a hub strategy. Perversely, Time Warner even turned around and tried to copy Disney, Thinking that the missing ingredient to their own portal was true web search, Time Warner came very close to buying AltaVista in 1999, but again, internal Time Warner politics conspired to scuttle the deal. By some estimates, the various guises of the Pathfinder experiment were to cost Time Warner between $100 and $200 million before all was said and done and the site was shuttered in April of 1999. Perhaps the greatest corporate legacy of Pathfinder was how its expensive failures so beat down Time Warner management, and probably made the eventual merger with AOL inevitable. Because despite all of the failures, again, Jerry Levin never stopped believing that technology could transform Time Warner's businesses. 
And so, after so many abortive attempts to just do it on his own, it became a case of, well, if you can't beat him, join him. To this day, Pathfinder still exists as a landing page on the web with links to Time Inc.'s sites, sort of like it had at the beginning, and sort of as it was always meant to be. So why were Yahoo and Excite and all the other new websites considered successes, worth billions of dollars, when Pathfinder wasn't? This despite, for a long time, Pathfinder being, at least in terms of traffic numbers, very much an equal. Well, the answer is just because Pathfinder was inside Time Warner, and it seemed to be clear to outsiders that Time Warner didn't know what it was doing with Pathfinder. There's a great book by Michael Wolf, who was a consultant to Time Warner at this time, called Burn Rate. It's a fantastic book, well-written. If you want a good dose of the personalities from this era, read that book. It's excellent. Here's a snippet that I think can give you the flavor of the misadventure that was Pathfinder. Quoting Michael Wolf, Even with my scant knowledge, I knew what a mess of plans were being made on the basis of assumptions about technology that were comically haphazard. It was often a cascade of misunderstandings or knowledge synapses, a wonderful patrician 1950s-style Time Warner editor having a weighty discussion with the salesman from Weiss, the search software company, and throughout the discussion, helplessly confusing the client-server relationship. A determined Walter Isaacson accolade insisting to a programmer that while something may not be possible now, it would surely be possible in the next 12 months or so, wouldn't it? They treated technology like a service arm of what they were trying to do. End quote. Or here's how the technology writer Kara Swisher summed things up in her book about the Time Warner AOL merger called There Must Be a Pony in Here Somewhere, quote, Full Service Network and Pathfinder were simply too early for their time, not to mention way too much like old media to satisfy those who were flocking to new media. As services, they were cumbersome, confusing, and spoke from the top in a medium that thrived on bubbling up from the bottom, end quote. And yet, Pathfinder was so early and so much of a trailblazer, I can't help but feel sorry that its reputation in history is largely one of failure. Again, the Pathfinder producer Lessard, quote, This was really the big initiative by the largest media company in the world, but no one talks about it. It's like it never existed. It was their failure with Pathfinder that really led to the AOL merger or acquisition in the first place. They couldn't wrap their arms around the logic of it. With AOL, you pop in the disc, and in 10 minutes, you're talking dirty to someone in a chat room. That's what it's about. End quote. Well, hopefully we're doing a little something here to help people remember it. Again, I've chosen Time Warner to focus on here because, for a time... Pathfinder was such a major player, and because, as we'll get to in a few chapters from now, the eventual AOL-Time Warner merger was such a big deal at the time. But in truth, all the major media companies had similar struggles and similar trajectories. 
They all began by cozying up to the online services, playing AOL and CompuServe and Prodigy off one another for lucrative licensing of their brands and content. But that was when the online services needed the brands to build their own brand. Once AOL was rocketing past 20 million subscribers, and once it switched from hourly pricing to a flat monthly fee, the tables were turned. Just as Chan Sa had warned all those years before, AOL eventually canceled all of its content partnerships. And now if you were a brand and you wanted to reach AOL's tens of millions of users, you had to pay AOL. And you had to pay big time. Again, the media world at this time was terrified of AOL, especially in the late 90s. Remember, advertising goes where eyeballs go and where people spend their time and attention. The most amount of advertising money still goes to television because Americans still spend hours a day watching TV. In 1992, users only spent five minutes a day on AOL. But by 1999, that figure had jumped to 54 minutes a day. Still not more than television time, but certainly cutting into it. And so the media companies feared that AOL represented something entirely new, a modern media platform that was eating its lunch and its profits. Again, let me quote here from Motovali's book. Quote, What was particularly impressive to other media companies, even a bottom-line-oriented one like Time Warner, was the fact that AOL had developed three distinct revenue streams, subscriptions, advertising, and e-commerce licensing. That was a very difficult achievement in an era in which two revenue streams were the norm. Broadcasters receive all their revenue from advertising, and they envy the cable networks, which get subscription fees from cable subscribers and ad revenue. But now here was a powerful, growing company that had successfully developed a third revenue stream, helping it attain revenue of $4.8 billion in the 1999 fiscal year. End quote. And so, just like Time Warner, the media conglomerates ran in fear of AOL. In a previous chapter, I pointed out how the Portal Wars contributed to the rise of the dot-com bubble because the portals had voracious appetites for acquiring small companies to burnish their portal arsenals. In a similar way, the media companies contributed to the dot-com frenzy by their fear of becoming dependent on AOL. They needed to compete in digital media with AOL, but they didn't want to do it on AOL's platform. So the web, inherently owned by nobody, was the logical place for them to turn. And so here we have all those beleaguered new media divisions that Motovali spoke of, springing up and getting funded at every conceivable media company, property, and division. Everybody had to find a way to make money on the web, and so here you have previously conservative companies suddenly being willing to throw hundreds of millions of dollars around to remain competitive. But all the media companies had struggles similar to Time Warner's, and for various reasons. For one thing, when it comes to media and the web, nasty issues of ownership, copyright, and piracy are always rearing their ugly head. Remember, the web was predicated on this sort of free-for-all, the mashup culture, as we would later call it, or the shareware ethos, as it was originally known. The web was about any Joe Schmo publishing anything. This was decidedly not a philosophy that the modern media conglomerates were built on. So, for example, 
then as now, Star Trek is a pretty popular presence on the web. An Alta Vista web search all the way back in 1997 would have found you more than 100,000 Trek-related websites. And so in a famous case in early 1997, Viacom decided that anybody talking about Trek, posting pictures of Trek, naming their sites after Trek characters, they were all violating the Star Trek copyrights owned by Viacom. Teenage kids were suddenly receiving threatening letters from Viacom's legal department. Nowadays, of course, companies embrace fans interacting with their properties online. In fact, it's the bedrock of modern marketing strategies. Imagine where Lost would have been if ABC had cracked down on every Lost-themed website. But at that time, Viacom was just doing what it was entirely within its rights to do, and what made sense for them to do in the media world as they understood it. Remember, Viacom was fairly hostile to the web for a long time. But even if a media company wanted to embrace the web, the old rules of the game meant that they sometimes couldn't. Seinfeld was obviously the most popular TV program of the late 90s, and yet there never really was a strong or satisfactory web presence, a Seinfeld.com site, or even an NBC-based Seinfeld fan site. Why? Well, because NBC didn't necessarily have the rights to do Seinfeld on the web. Did NBC have the rights, or did Castle Rock Entertainment, the company that produced Seinfeld? Or did Warner Brothers, who eventually purchased Castle Rock? Or did Columbia TriStar, owned by Sony, which distributed Seinfeld in syndication? At the time, media deals did not take things like this into consideration. There weren't necessarily web clauses written into any of the contracts, so no one quite knew what to do. Or consider the odd case of Time Warner Cable, subsidiary of Time Warner, and one of the companies ultimately responsible for ushering in the broadband era eventually. The name for their cable internet service would eventually be Roadrunner, which is a cute bit of corporate synergy with Warner Brothers cartoon characters, except for the fact that Warner Brothers, Time Warner's theoretical cable corporate sibling, didn't think so. And so, before the name could be officially signed off on, the cable modem service was forced to launch as Line Runner because they couldn't get the rights to use Roadrunner. Again, it's all these poor, beleaguered new media divisions all doing the best they can. So, for the purposes of history, let's run down some of their efforts. We've mentioned that Viacom and CBS largely sat out some of the early web madness, but its new media arm was busy nonetheless. CBS would eventually spend upwards of $800 million, most of it late in the game, purchasing stakes in new media companies such as MarketWatch, Sportsline, Hollywood.com, PrescriptionRx.com, Jobs.com, and even Webvan. But it largely acquired these stakes by swapping promotional time on its networks. So, ever cautious, it was give us equity and we'll give you ad time, thereby preserving cash. But in an indication of Viacom's overall feelings about the internet, we can see a glimpse by looking at Chairman Sumner Redstone's own autobiography, A Passion to Win, published in the year 2001, which doesn't even mention the internet even once, despite looking back at his entire storied career. 
we mentioned that Disney's big play was the Go.com network, which some estimates say costed a total of $1.5 billion in lost investment. To take advantage of the hot stock market, though, Disney had initially spun off its internet assets and projects as a separate company, the Disney Internet Group. This was actually a common practice at the time, a way not only to raise cheap cash, but also to get company executives a piece of that hot IPO stock option action. Stocks like these were, at times, high flyers, and Disney Internet Group, DIG, was at one time trading at $84 a share. Of course, when Disney was eventually forced to buy out the shareholders and wind up DIG operations, it did so at a paltry $6 a share. NBC, at the time, of course, a division of the notoriously stingy General Electric, is another interesting case. GE was famously averse to any speculative new venture that couldn't return meaningful profits from day one, but it wasn't immune to the late-stage dot-com fever either, Investing in portals and search plays like Zoom.com and Snap.com, and it too spun out NBC Interactive, or NBCI, as a separate stock. NBC's experience with MSNBC was especially unusual, as it essentially fell into NBC's lap. Bill Gates, always desirous of claiming a foothold for Microsoft in the American living room, remember his many attempts at making web TV ago at this time, basically bankrolled the creation of the channel to the tune of half a billion dollars. This was all the way back in 1995 when Microsoft was still positioning MSN as a competitor to AOL and way before Fox News, so NBC was lucky enough to get to create the first true cable competition for CNN, basically on Bill Gates's dime. An NBC executive said later, quote, GE CEO Jack Welsh was always thrilled that somebody had finally taken Microsoft in a negotiation, end quote. There were even things like Pop.com, bankrolled by Microsoft co-founder Paul Allen, with big-name partners and investors from Hollywood like Jeffrey Katzenberg, Ron Howard, Steven Spielberg, and David Geffen. The site was supposed to generate short films and other media clips with A-list talent attached, the site eventually staffed up to as many as 70 people and had dreams of an IPO of its own, but it never ultimately went anywhere. But possibly more interesting than all these stories are the weird nooks and crannies of the media industry where people would go on to find online success. And that's what we'll be talking about in part two of this chapter. If you're enjoying this podcast, there's one simple thing that you can do to help us out. If you do nothing else, just go to iTunes and rate us. One to five stars takes about two seconds. Or give us a review because the weird way that iTunes works is it's not just the number of downloads, it's also the number of ratings and reviews. As always, you can join the conversation at www.internethistorypodcast.com. Get more info, see pictures, and see my full bibliography for each episode. The show's Twitter is at NetHistoryPod, and my personal Twitter is at BrianMCC. Thanks for listening. <laughs>